My name is Patricia Kathleen, and this podcast series will contain interviews I conduct with women, female-identified, and non-binary individuals regarding their professional stories and personal narrative as it relates to their perspective. This podcast is designed to hold a space for all individuals to learn from their counterparts, regardless of age, status, or industry. We intend to transparently investigate the evolving global dialogue regarding underrepresented figures in all industries across the USA and abroad. By hosting these stories and conversations, we aim to contribute to the changing platform and representation of these individuals for the future. If you're enjoying this podcast series, be sure to check out our subsequent series called Roundtable with Patricia Kathleen, where we talk with a panel of guests regarding key topics that arise in these individual interviews. You can subscribe to all of our podcast series on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean, as well as our website, patriciacathleen.com. You can also contact me directly via this website or through my media website, wild.agency. That's W-I-L-D-E dot agency. Thanks for listening. Now let's start the conversation. Hi, everyone, and welcome back. This is your host, Patricia, and today I am sitting down with Amy Willard-Cross. She's the founder of the Gender Fair Index. The Gender Fair Index is like the good housekeeping seal. Gender Fair is a consumer rating system for equality. Welcome, Amy. Thank you. Thank you for being on. I'm looking forward to kind of climbing into Gender Fair and everything that it does. It actually parlays very well into several podcasts we've done earlier this year. You can find Gender Fair, uh, more about Gender Fair um, on your own at genderfair.com. That is G-E-N-D-E-R-F-A-I-R.com. And before I read Amy's bio, I'm going to get briefly into the roadmap of today's podcast. It will follow the trajectory that all of them for this series does. Namely, we will be looking... Um, first at uh, the at back academic background and early professional life, then we'll turn towards under, unpacking gender fair and the current endeavors that Amy may have going on outside of that. Then we'll turn our attention towards goals that she has for the next three years, um, specifically regarding perhaps scaling, expansion, um, brand reconsideration, um, given the current times. And then we will also wrap everything up with advice that Amy has looking at um, those of you who may be looking to get involved with what she does or perhaps emulate a little bit of her career success. A quick bio um, on Amy before I start peppering her with questions. Foreign Policy named her a global thinker of 2015 for her work on economic girl power. In 2016, she was invited to join the Clinton Global Initiative. Prior to that, Amy Cross created a women's news site, Vitamin W Media, which rated women's and co-ed colleges, conducted a rebranding contest campaign for feminism, and co-created the Ad Feminism Campaign. For 20 years, Cross worked as an editor and writer for national publications in Canada and the U.S., writing features, essays, and reviews, as well as authoring two books and working on TV shows. In her 20s, she developed the first magazine for midlife women for the publishers of Shape. An honors graduate of Wellesley, she maintained the family tradition of attending women's college since the 1880s and is named for Frances Willard, a friend and comrade of her great-grandmother's. So, Amy, we spoke um, off the record before we started talking a little bit about that um, Francis Willard story, and I really do 
love and appreciate that. And I think it ties into the narrative of your personal life. And before we get into unpacking your current company, Gender Fair, I'm hoping that you can drop us into a brief background of your academia as well as early professional life. Sure. Um, uh, I went to a women's college because my grandmother had gone to a women's college as, as her mother had. And she said to me, Amy, in my day, a woman had to be a hundred times better than a man. In your day, it'll be about 50. She mm-hmm. said it in a bad Georgia accent. But anyway, so I was very convinced. I only, I only applied to women's colleges and Harvard just because my dad and granddad had gone there. But I didn't get into Harvard, thank goodness. And uh, yeah, I only applied to women's colleges and I went to Wellesley. And, and at Wellesley, I studied um, not... I knew I always knew I was going to be a writer since I was a wee thing. That's what I knew was my job was going to be writing. And so instead of studying English literature, where I'd read all the books in high school, I decided to do French literature because the critical um, work was so much more interesting. You know, at the time people were reading mm. semiotics and structuralism as opposed to like new criticism. So I did a major in French literature and I created a, a independent major in what I called aesthetic philosophy, which was composed of studies I did in France around semiotics and structuralism in French, which I've totally forgotten, of course. But um, so yeah, that was my academic background. And I did a lot of theaters at college. And also when I was younger, I was in, I was involved in the theater since I was a little kid. I wrote my first play when I was nine called Men's Liberation, if you can imagine. It was a dystopian universe where the women were the oppressors. Mm-hmm. And um, and I produced, directed, and acted, and, and I fixed I fixed the quality in, in just in one act actually by a little child walking on stage and telling their mothers they shouldn't oppress their fathers, and that that did it. Yeah. And, and a vacation ended anyway. So I was I worked in the theater a lot is in college, and I wrote plays about gender equality, and um, and I always knew I'd be a writer. That was always my job. Um, no. Um, did you, you want to hear about my first jobs too, really? Because that's they're sort of uh, Whatever you find most fascinating, you know, whatever okay. so, punctuated ha. your history. <laughs> my history. So, um, uh, well, in Paris, I worked for a writer. That was fun. Um, my first job actually was indexing a book about product liability, which was always very interesting. And, um, and then I started my career in LA. I worked in literary agencies thinking I wanted to work in Hollywood, but I really didn't. So I went back to the magazine business. And, I, and in my 20s, I tried to start a magazine just by myself at age 23. You know, I'm just, I didn't realize then it was called a startup. I just thought I wanted to start a magazine. And then I wanted to start to what, was, what we call now Time Out. I, went to, I came to LA and I wanted to do sort of a version of Time Out for Los Angeles. This is in the early 80s. I had a partner. We didn't, it didn't, it didn't succeed. But anyway, that was my thing. So I'm always trying, I think I see a pattern in my life that I'm trying to build new things. Like mm-hmm. I don't just want to go and do the, do something plow a field. I want to clear my own field and, and do my own thing sometimes. I don't always succeed, but that seems to have been a pattern. So I'm wondering, if, well, I mean, being a writer in, in France or working for a writer in France, I always jump back to George Sand, you know, this <laughs> idea of being this amazing feminist um, figure in writing. Um, did you, did, how did all of that, it sounds like you were always kind of attached to from the, the childhood play of fixing gender inequality and your utopian reversal yeah. Did you always have this kind of um, back of the brain attachment to um, putting emphasis on gender when it came to business or is it something that kind of eventuated later in your business career? Uh, yeah, I didn't really, th- in my professional career, I didn't really think about it so much, even though in, actually in college, I also wrote plays about women's inequality. But um, yeah, and I came out to the adult world not sort of seeing very much unfairness, right? Because I'm working in a magazine business. There are women at the top in the magazine business. They're not at the tippy top, but you know, I couldn't even see that high. 
But one time, um, I wrote my first book in my late 20s, which was ahead of schedule for me, because originally I thought I wouldn't write a book until I was in my 40s. But I was, um, so I started reviewing books also um, for the national newspaper. I moved to Canada in my late 20s. And I reviewed a book by, the second book by Naomi Wolf. And it was a pivotal moment for me. In the book, it was called Fire with Fire. It was after her big bestseller. And she had a chapter where she did a byline count of the women writers of the major magazines, such as Harper's, Atlantic, New Yorker. And I grew up as a child, you know, reading the New Yorker, the Harper's and Atlantic. In fact, I used to always count the ads in the New Yorker every week. I had this crazy thing. That, but um, I don't know why my friend and I used to do a, a count of all the ads in the New Yorker. Um, anyway, she did a byline count of these, of these magazines. And I saw that women were not at the top of these sort of thoughtful magazines. And I never occurred to me that I wouldn't get there. It just, I always thought, well, I'll be at the tippy top. Like I'll be writing for the New Yorker. And I realized the statistical improbability, especially coming from Canada and not knowing all these people, that, that, that it was very unlikely that I'd fulfill this childhood dream of mine. And that was quite a big moment for me actually to realize that there were sort of barriers in place that I probably could have, could overcome, but it would, you know, be a life's work to overcome. And that was quite shocking to me. So it always, it's always shown to me the power of numbers and counting. So in my own career, that made a big switch for me because I always swore I would never, ever work for women's magazines. I hate women's magazines. My mother never read them. But um, soon after that, a few years after that, especially when I was very broke, I went to go work for one because um, I saw that there was impediments before me in the wider world. How did that go? How was the baptism into the not going there and then going there? (laughs) Well, we were in bankruptcy at the time and I was pregnant. Um, So um, you just want a job, right? And it was actually, no, I worked for a Canadian magazine called Chatelaine, which some people know from a Katie Long. Katie Lang has a song called Miss Chatelaine. Mm. Um, So it's the major women's magazine in Canada. And I would say it's a little bit, has a little bit more of a feminist edge than most women's American magazines, even sort of you know, they covered, I wrote, I wrote a business column. I wrote it. I did the humor part of the magazine that there was, so it had a lot of general interest. had a, always had a, at least one story about feminism um, and had, had, it did have some feminist cred as well as some recipes. So, and the people with whom I worked were really smart and I loved it. So I had a great time and I had a great freedom and I could work, I'd work with some of the, you know, best-selling authors. I'd excerpt their books. It was, it was, it was um, for a women's magazine. It was a little bit um, it was much more palatable than most ones I would have worked for in New York, I think. Did it break down the door? Did you soon after that start to affiliate yourself or work for more women's magazine or was it a one-off? Uh, well, no, I worked there for about seven years. I was on staff for a long time and then, um, and then I sort of got bored of it and I had little children. So I switched. I, I worked for a, a different, more a general interest magazine. But I actually once tried, I even tried to buy it. Actually, it was going bankrupt and I tried to buy it. Oh, that's a lot of love. That goes from like barely tolerating. Which I would have never to... thought of. <laughs> I would, what, I, what? No, no, not the women's magazine. I tried to buy another sort of general interest magazine, sort of the Harper, sort of an intellectual magazine of Canada. So after oh, I, I left the women's magazine, the major magazine of Canada was going bankrupt. And then I said, oh, and I said to my husband, no, this is terrible. Canadian, you know, the, the, the general the intellectual magazine of Canada shouldn't die. And he goes, well, we should buy it. I'm like, buy it. You know, I didn't think that way. And so I made a bid to buy it. I didn't get, it wasn't received. It wasn't accepted, but anyway, I tried. And then I got a job there. 
Nice. Well, at least you tried and that can go down in your um, memoirs. Attempted to buy a magazine. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> That's good. Attempted to buy a magazine. Um, so I'm wondering how, let's kind of climb into gender fair. You've had, um, you know, this prolific history of climbing in and out of different endeavors. How did it, um, formalize? Let's get into some of like the nuts and bolts, the brick and mortar. When was it launched and what was the impetus for the launch? And did you have any other founders? Yes. Okay. Perfect. Um, so in my bio, I mentioned this other women's news site that I had done in the early and that, you know, around 2012, I'd started trying to do sort of some news through a feminist lens. And um, I saw that content that we would create would get stolen and put on other sites. And I realized hmm. this is not a good thing. When, when, when the material, you, when what you do can be stolen and other people can sell advertising off of it. Mm-hmm. And everyone thinks it's okay. So I realized I need to move to data because data has more value and data creates social change. People have been writing about these issues. I've been writing about these issues for a long time. So I thought, if I'm trying to change um, the state of gender equality in America, I can do a better job of that with the data journalism because it, as I said, pays the bills and also creates change. So in 2014, I retooled the news site into um, the index. It had a different name at the time, and I was the sole founder. And uh, I hired a team. I had an MBA who did the project management. We hired researchers. We collected data on all the on all the public companies, and we created a rubric for how we're going to judge them. We, we were, it's based on the UN's Women Empowerment Principles, which were originally founded by some a group called Calvert. And so we also found data points that were um, benchmarkable and often reported. So. Um, and then, so we, anyway, we created these metrics along with a lot of experts, and then we went ahead and started filling it in. And, and, and we, we created an app, we launched, I think, um, in the summer of 2015. And, uh, and within the first few months, I had great attention. I was, you know, Chelsea Clinton and Ariana Huffington tweeted about me. There was a story in a magazine, in a, there was a story in a very good business um, publication that, um, showed how a major company had done badly on our index and the major company was very upset so the major company called us and said well you didn't report our maternity leave data and we said well you didn't reply to our fact checking Hmm. and it's not published on any of your websites so they said well if you tell us if we tell you the data would you change our score and we said of course if it's given from a um, a legal representative of the the company in writing Um, now we'd actually insist that they publish it we don't want just to have secret data. Mm-hmm. That's the whole point. And uh, so I can tell you that at four, I got to call it four in the morning Pacific time and we did change the score. And uh, so I can say that this, this does make measuring things does create change and companies don't like to be called out on things and they want to get an A. Um, so um, doing an index like ours has a great possibility for moving the needle. Another inspiration to this was something called the Human Rights Campaign Guide to Corporate Equality. Do you know that? Okay. Okay. Um, no, I don't. Uh-uh. The HRC. So the, oh, yeah. Um, the, H- the Human Rights Campaign, of course, is the, L- yeah, the LGBT lobby. Mm-hmm. And uh, on, many site, on many corporate sites, you'll see that they're, you know, they've won, they have a score of 100 on this index. Well, that's sort of our model. That index has created change in 1,700 companies over 15 years. That's huge. This means, you know, people are getting same-sex health benefits, 
it's, I mean, domestic, same sex domestic partner benefits. It's, it's amazing. And now, you know, and, and every year they, they up the metrics. So it'll be like, now we need to have, you know, gender reassignment surgery covered if you want to get an A. So that's created incredible amount of change. And I think if the, the LGBT population of America could do that to companies, yeah. I'm sure that women can do the same thing too. So this is the lever that we're trying to use now is trying to, we're going to try to have consumer power urge companies to make the changes they need to make. Absolutely. Well, and I wonder with that as well, um, when you talk about, so I've heard about a little bit, you've kind of described some change that's already taken place. I'm really interested in how companies start to transform after they've launched, particularly with such a successful launch like yours, where it had like this attention of um, some more famous individuals, as well as just it starting to slowly work very, very quickly. Right. And it sounds like, mm-hmm. you know, transparency is, is becoming an issue with like the name of your game. You're not going to allow people to not publish things online. Have some of the metrics of, of how you collect your data or what score you give people changed? Have you told people like it needs to be accessible online to everybody? Or, um, That's a has, great question. Mm-hmm. We're just, we just are redoing the metrics this year and we have a new... Um, machine learning enabled tool that's going to help us collect the data of all publicly traded companies, not just the consumer facing ones. So we can actually perhaps use it for investment purposes too. So our metrics are changing because the benchmarks have moved. The the ones in the current old app, which is sort of a a decaying old app, they are based from a few years ago. I'm happy to say the, the two benchmarks have changed since we started in 2015, but only two out of 18. So that's kind of sad women on boards has moved upward and uh, maternity leave and paternity leave have moved upward because those numbers are being watched and reported on and published and talked about. So, you know, I think that's the value of gender fair is that instead of just saying, Oh, we're good to women. We have a woman vice president. That's really not enough. We need to have a more holistic view of how Mm -hmm. are women and underrepresented people treated in organizations and um, to that point, we've actually added a metric of women of color on the board because now there's a met- there is a, a benchmark on that. I think it's 3.8% of Fortune 500 companies have a woman of color on the board. So by you know, measuring this, reporting and publishing it and making everyone aware, we're going to move that number upwards and we're going to put more women of color in, um, in, in other management data and ask for companies to report on that. Yeah. Do you have affiliations or people who have reached out to you? And if you do, and if you have collaborated, um, has it been useful or have you chosen not to because of some of the um, roadblocks that that can create? Like immediately I think of now and people like that, that would want to kind of affiliate just because some of your agenda items seem very closely connected. Well, I would love to do that. I mean, we, we've talked to many different women's organizations. I, I hired a former founder of the Women's March to consult with us this summer. Um, we've had many discussions with Time's Up. You know, I think, um, so we really, we're hoping, as we're, this year is the year we're going to try to reach consumers in a big way, because we haven't really done that, of course, because it takes a lot of money to reach consumers, right? It's all, mm-hmm. so um, yes, we would love to partner with a lot of, and we do partner with organizations. We're connected to the Network of Executive Women, my CEO would know all the names of these groups, but we do, we do already have many affiliations with different organizations. Um, we've worked with, we're a partner of Catalyst. I'm not sure if it's official or unofficial. I'm advising them on, on new metrics for companies. So yes, I think it's very important, especially as women who were, were outside of the mainstream. I think it's very important. The more we can collaborate and, and work together, the more we can, um, you know, throw 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 something over the castle walls of patriarchy because I, I always say that 
what I find. I mean, I'm not an, I'm not an activist or an advocate. I'm just a woman with an index, but I, I so notice that women will, you know, work in their single silos and I call mm-hmm. it sort of like throwing pebbles over the castle wall. And what I'd like us to do is I'd like us to get a whole bunch of mortar and put the pebbles together and get a catapult. And I think then we can make a hole in the wall of the castle. But I think just, I, I see women often disaggregated. Of course, you know, we're not one big voting block or spending block, but in some ways when we can do things in concert, we can create much more um, change and fairness. So I'm hoping that Gender Fair will be able to do that. Yeah, I think that, I mean, even in given recent times, you know, marches on Washington and things that seem to have raised more awareness, Mm -hmm. regardless of actual outcome, just kind of bringing it to the forefront of people's minds. It is this, it's all old school. It's all coming together again. It's always, you know, banding together in this very visual representation of the masses coming together. And so I agree with that. And it can be, like you said, it can be very disparatic when it, when it comes to this virtual reality that we're, we're all now getting into. You know, it feels very um, disparate, like how we're all even now communicating and socially isolating. So I do think that banding together on um, all fronts, even virtual, is is crucial. I agree with you. I'm wondering with your um, with the growth and everything, and 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 the awareness and the fame building and everything with your company. Um, have you gone back and measured growth since you've launched um, in 2015 to now? You guys have this healthy five-year span. Do you look at growth um, emotionally, um, philosophically, or financially, or all three? And how do you feel about your growth thus far as opposed to where you're headed to next? Uh, Well, you know, I think it's very, one has to stay mindful of the fact that, I mean, what I want to go is so far ahead and I see this horizon and I get so upset that I'm so far from it. But so to your point, I occasionally have to look back and say, okay, we've, we've achieved this, we've achieved that. So um, it's, I mean, it's, it's hard to be satisfied when you're trying to, when you're, when your job is to trying to create equality, it's very hard to feel yeah. like, you know, the, hard to feel spiritual or emotional satisfaction when it doesn't exist. Like, I hear people in business are, are talking about diversity fatigue. I'm like, how can you have fatigue of something that doesn't exist? Yeah. It's like, yeah, absolutely. That's it's like funny. saying my muscles are tired and, uh, but I didn't exercise. Like I pulled a muscle, but I didn't play tennis. Like I just don't get it. So I don't know if I answered your question, but um, yeah. Looking, no, you looking did. Backward, looking forward is you, you do looking forward. We're always meant to look forward but it is important to look backward and um and i just have so much more i need to do yes absolutely well and and so you shall i'm wondering um given that you're you're always looking forward do you do the traditional um in a company like yours i wonder how much is the traditional versus a variance of it but the the typical three-year plan where you look forward and you kind of set these benchmarkers for the next three years as to where you need to be where you're going to head and that kind of trickles down to set up the calendar for the next year year after that and if so can you let us in on any of your plans for the next three years Sure. Yes. My CEO does really great plans for us in the beginning of the year. I'm not sure if they're three years or we just do one year right now. Actually, our last plan was a survival plan because that's what you're doing. Everyone's, you know, companies doing survival plans that are COVID. What, what can you do and how can you buckle down and figure out what you're going to do when there's no, probably no income coming in for a few months, right? Mm-hmm. Everything's sort of shut down. So our goals, uh, our goals for the next year are, are, are very exciting. We are relaunching the app 
we didn't actually publicize the last app a lot because it didn't have it didn't have a capability to to um, archive people's emails. So that's not really good. So our new app has a scanning possibility because you know if if you actually do want to try to shop gender fair, make it easier on people. Really, I want it on on products. I don't think if there could be a cruelty free bunny and a marine steward certified fish and a forest steward certified paper. I don't understand why I can have a gender fish sticker on face cream to me. Like I'm a half of the population. Yes. So, um, that's, that's my, that's probably a 10 year goal when I've talked to CMOs of big CPG companies who love what we're doing by the way, but they say, Oh, we don't want anything on our product. I'm like, I bet you the women would, but, um, maybe, maybe in 10 years. But so our plan this year is to launch this app and to, um, create, we're, we're trying to think about doing a, a campaign with a coalition of a few brands and organizations similar to Red or One, and we're talking to some people who have who who did the Red or One campaign because we love what they did. So um, yes, the next goal is to put out the app, create a consumer coalition branded campaign around the idea that your your consumer shopping habits can can drive uh, gender equality. So we're hoping to be able to fund a little bit of that consumer outreach because as you know that's that's very expensive, but. Um, that's, the ne- that's the next phase. We've been, we've been building slowly among influencers and, and the women's community. Absolutely. That, I think I it's got key. an unstable message, but um, so. No, no, yes. no. I, I've got, I've, so, I've received all of you. And I do. I, I think that that is key. Um, I, I, I mean, advertising money, you know, dollars in the bank, like that's one of the largest motivators, you know, and tragic or not, that's just the way it is. And I think that, you know, hitting people, people, you know, saying it does make a difference and your consumers would want to buy differently. I think it's one of the greatest motivators for social change that we have right now and in a capitalistic society, you know, and so I think that that's an exciting um, goal on your horizon for sure, and convincing people to do that. In fact, when you were describing the index earlier, um, I've spoken with a lot of VC and angel investors this year, particularly, um, well, only all female, because that's who I deal with, female-identified non-binary individuals. And um, they have all, you know, all of these investors, the the lens has been this um, full life cycle, if you will, of becoming this female entrepreneur, getting female investment, and then becoming a female investor yourself. It's fulfilling that last piece of the cycle. so that it continues to happen. And um, I think it's, it's wildly important for a lot of these people to know how many people um, are based on, you know, the, the gender metrics within that company. And so I think that VCs mm-hmm. themselves, you know, would be interested in, in particularly <laughs> female VCs in funding right. said company to help them go on to help determine and decipher those things in the future. So that's exciting. Right. I think it's a, yeah, I think I'd like to work, we'd like to work with startups and VCs to actually show them like, you know, make sure you're building these processes in place. So, you know, make sure you have goals for hiring and retention and stuff like that. So, and, and the right, the right kind of policies in place to keep people there. So I think that's, um, that's an area where we can actually provide value. I'm really hoping that we can, can do that. Huge value and huge um, change, you know, changing that, met- changing the horizon begins with the startups, right? Begins with right. the people who are developing the new climate that's out there. So that's exciting. I'm wondering, right. because you've had so much going on in the past, um, like five years and your entire life, but this kind of the boom of what's happened with genderfair.com. Um, if someone came up to you tomorrow, a woman, a female identified non-binary individual and said, listen, 
um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go out, I'm going to start this index. It's going to help collect a lot of information that people need to help change, you know, this very um, unsatisfied piece of the economy right now. What are the top three pieces of advice you would give that person knowing what you know right now from what you've done? Oh, from what I'm going to do. Well, I mean, is it going to do? Is it going to be duplicative of what I do or not? <laughs> no, they're not going to compete with you. Is that <laughs> no. what you're asking? Well, no. no. <laughs> yes. um, um, well, what would I say? Well, I'd say that the key thing is to find. Uh, we froze. We're froze. Let me see. Can you hear me now? Yes, Let me I check. Think my daughter. Um, I've got you crystal clear. I'm yeah, wondering just, if I, I'm still I frozen froze. for you. No, no, no I mean, that's good. It's it's it stopped. It's good. Okay. It stopped. Um, so what was oh, what would I what kind you, of information? The, what I, I would say the key work, piece, you know the, the key piece would be to I would say work with an organization. I didn't do that. I just did it. You know, on my own. I'm not an organizational person. I'm just you know I'm a, I'm a I'm a writer by trade. Writers are just like you know me, my pen and my paper. Um, and my writing callus. So in retrospect, although my first, my first news site, I was actually trying to gather together all the women's organizations. Actually, what I want to do, I want to become like the news vehicle for everyone followed all the women's organizations. And I only got like five involved. But anyway, so I would say work with, work with an existing organization because anything you build by yourself is always way, way harder. And you're talking about, you know, trying to get a, a, a buy-in of social change. The more, um, the more community you can build into as opposed to create your own community would be much more effective. Right. Mm -hmm. That would be that like the human rights campaign. They did very well, of course, because they already had an organization and a population to whom they distributed this idea of, um, of buying for um, gender about for LGBT equality. So that would be my main um, advice. And also just be clean about your data and don't make it all at all pay to play because there's a lot of things out now in the business world. I don't know if you're in the business world. I don't know where you came from, Patricia Kathleen, except you're a, a wild goddess who's talking to me today. But um, there's a lot in the business world of like all these best lists and they are completely, I think the Irish word is S-H-I-T-E. They're, <laughs> they're not useful because they're pay to play and they're not transparent mm -hmm. and, um, and they confuse the whole endeavor. There's a, a great DNI person called Aubrey Blanche who wrote about this a while ago. It was just perfect. So, you know, companies pay hundreds of thousands of dollars to get on these lists and they're not useful lists. And so they actually bring us backwards. So um, I think that whenever you're going to do an index of anything or report to be, do anything around information, please make it correct and, yep. and clean and transparent. Otherwise, it's really not use, useful. No. Not at all. Yeah, I love that because um, one of our household mantras is clean code or die. And it's because I'm married oh. to an old school software um, computer developer and programmer. And um, <laughs> the death of that kingdom, you know, you can ruin um, four years worth of work with like a really bad break. And it can take another six months to fix. And um, this concept of messy code is kind of the, <laughs> the downfall of, of, of what he feels like the entire kingdom is. And so we have this like clean code or die, you know, it's like honor or death. So um, in our house. And so clean data is, is very moving for me on a lot of levels. And um, yeah. I have a bachelor's of science in psychology and sociology. And with that came a deep knowledge wow. of statistics. And statistics oh. cares deeply about clean data. 
you know, and making sure that you actually account for the parts that isn't clean. Um, correlation mm. versus causation, all of those things become incredibly important. And I think that it speaks a lot to the data that you're talking about and collecting. And I completely agree with you. I'm wondering when you, um, because, you know, you deal in an area of you desiring change and it happening at this kind of glacial pace and desiring mm. it at, at a faster pace, when you yeah. write and having that, which I imagine sits on your chest from time to time, what do you say to yourself to kind of pick yourself back up when you feel just like, ah, it's not happening fast enough, things aren't working out? Like, how do you motivate yourself when times become burdensome? Oh, I don't know, except that you're just really not allowed to give up, right? right. <laughs> just I want it. So certainly you want to give up. It's hard. It's really hard. And uh, but actually, I want to go back to something you were talking about earlier, because it, a lot of it has to do with money. Who is controlling the money? You know, what I need to, what I, one of our challenges is that we need more companies to, that meet our metrics to, um, to pay to be members of Gender Fair and fund our work, because I, we're, a, we're a for-profit public benefit corporation. When I started this, I could have actually gone as a nonprofit. I purposely did not want to compete with, you know, Planned Parenthood or NARAL or these very important women's organizations for donation dollars. <laughs> yeah. So the idea was that we could have brands pay for the social change instead of having women pay for the change. Like, isn't that wrong? Like when you look at what happens in big American companies, I don't know if you're aware, but I, mean, I study this all the time. They have you know, women's ERGs have to go and fix the, the gender equality problem or the, the African-American uh, employee group has to sort of try to fix diversity. It's like, this is really not fair. And they, these people spend their, you know, their, their, their time and um, time at work trying to, extra time at work trying to fix the problem. So my idea is that the brands can help pay for this. And Absolutely. I think that's and should, very key. And so, should want to. Um, I agree. That yeah. would be, and should. That right, and that can be our challenge. Sometimes I will tell you quite frankly, I've had major Fortune 500 companies that spend hundreds of millions of dollars in advertising who say they're dying to work with us and they want to do this and this and that with us and have this partnership and go to these conferences with us. And they say, Well, but don't you think you just just do it for free just for the partnership? And 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 uh, I hmm. say, Well, no, actually, because we have to fund our research and we have to fund our staff. But I've actually, I don't think, I just want to, this is what I call uh, capitalist misogyny. I don't think they would ever say that to a man. No, I ever. was just thinking that. Right. They definitely wouldn't. That would, that, that would not happen. Would yeah, but I maybe do. It would. Maybe it I, would. Perhaps. I mean, I do know women who have said one of it the greatest lessons over the past year, you know, over um, in speaking with women for the past 24 months that I have, um, in this dedicated format, one of the greatest lessons, over 60% of women, when I ask them the greatest lesson that they learned is that they say that they, um, they wish they had gone back and told their younger self not to give it away for free. That as women, they started out underestimating their worth and not really appreciating what they had. And um, if they had learned one thing, it was that um, to recognize the value of their work and not provide more than what they should have. You know, I've, I, and they, they talked about how one of their greatest realizations as they mm -hmm. kind of came through their career, the concept that like they just provided far too much work for far too little money and really figuring out what to charge people. I think that that is kind of playing out when people do suggest that you do things for free just for the affiliation dollars or whatever. I mean, I don't know that a lot of people would suggest that to a, a man's company, but you know, as you speculated, perhaps they would. It just, it also speaks to the same parody as women saying, mm. I used to do that in the beginning. 
and they had to cut male clients who kind of wanted them to continue that, um, that same relationship where they were providing more than they ought to for the amount they're getting paid. You know, kind of renegotiating those becomes very difficult once you've established this, you can have a lot while I get charged very little type of thing. One other thing about what I want to talk about, you were talking about um, investors. I think another really power, great thing to think about is that, you know, women, women do control huge amounts of capital. We, could, we expend $5 trillion a year as consumers in the United States or shopping, let's not call it consumers, and investment women controls between 11 and $13 trillion in investable assets. This is massive power. And our whole message is yeah. to say that women can use that power to help one another and help heal the world. And what I, what I find very hopeful is women creating new ecosystems of wealth and capital to create worlds in which they want to live. So, you know, you see the, some of the successful VCs who helped create this group called All Raise, which is trying to fund women, um, women-owned businesses. And um, they are deploying their capital in a way that is aligned with their values. And they're working really hard at it. There's another group in Canada that I wrote the first ch check for called uh, CEO, And we've mobilized $5 million to women's businesses. And what's great about it is instead of complaining about systems that aren't working for us, we just created a whole new system. Absolutely. And um, I think that women can put their women can put their money together in the aggregate. Shio takes one thousand dollar checks, but we've built it up to five million, or you know take million dollar checks. But in in either case, if women women who have any means or even small means can aggregate them to um, to buy and invest in the things that they like in the world. Absolutely. And you have things like the woman's tax, you know, and things that are currently in play that I would like to change one day, but until they do get changed, I think that having our purchase dollar mean more um, because we're paying more for every single thing that we buy for ourselves makes um, perfect mm -hmm. sense. I was going to say, I have a special present for people because I like to, if, if whoever, whoever wants to, I'm sick of putting this on Twitter. I, I think one, one thing I could do for people is if they want to tell me what brands they buy right now, they, their, their common shopping list, I could tell them what, which things are gender fair, which one is not. I could redo people's shopping lists. Just, just a, a, nice, a nice COVID present in this, in this funny time. That's a, hear me though. that's a beautiful promise. That's a pretty major one too. You're going to do this for anybody that tweets sure, you no, back? No, not at all. <laughs> sure. Fantastic. Yeah, I think so. Actually, I just got the idea the other day. You know what? Why not? We have, to do something. we have to do something different. It's not business as usual at the moment, right? No. Why so not? You fun. guys heard it here. Reach out to genderfair.com. Send Amy your um, shopping lists and let's rewrite those to, um, to the right companies and reroute yes, you. Write me or tweet me. Tweet. There you go. Absolutely. Absolutely. Perfect. Yeah, totally. Well, Absolutely. we are, we're running up against the uh, being out of time. I wanted to wrap everything up with um, the advice that you gave me a few minutes ago, Amy. Um, I had first written down work with an organization, um, advice that she had um, for someone walking up to her looking for advice tomorrow. The first one was look for an organization to work with. The second one was be clean about your data and don't be concerned with the pay to play uh, phenomena ruling all of your work. And the third one was um, you're not allowed to give up. 
which is uh, the words of comfort she gives herself when I asked her if, what, how she felt sometimes, you know, um, how she included herself in this um, hoorah moment, which I love. And um, I just wanted to end today with saying thank you so much, Amy, with um, meeting with us today. I appreciate all of uh, your rhetoric and I will double back uh, in a few months, six months, nine months and uh, bug you for another interview because I think gender fair and the work that you're doing is phenomenal and really, really important to stay abreast of. I want everyone listening to get on genderfair.com and explore um, everything that uh, it's doing and all of the knowledge it has to everyone to glean from. And I want to say thank you again to Amy. You're awesome. Thank you so much. Lovely to speak to you. I wish we could be doing it longer outside on the patio. Me too. Next time when everyone is thank safe. You. Thank you. And for everyone listening, thank you so okay, much for giving you. us your time today. And until we speak again next time, remember to always bet on yourself. Slunchy.